Hey there, InstructureCast fam! Get ready to jump into all things education with us. With a passion for teaching and learning as our compass, we'll embark on a journey filled with engaging conversations, insightful interviews, and a celebration of all the amazing things you bring to our community. Whether you're a seasoned teacher or a fresh-faced administrator, we are here to ignite that spark of inspiration and keep your enthusiasm soaring. So, hit that subscribe button, come hang out with us on social, in a totally chill way, we promise, and spread the ed love with your entire crew. Together, we'll create a symphony of knowledge, sharing our experiences and learning from one another. And make sure to check out the Instructure community as it awaits you with open arms, brimming with more incredible content, valuable advice, and a network of like-minded individuals. Join the adventure and let's groove, learn, and celebrate education like never before, right here on InstructureCast. Well, hello everyone. Welcome again to another episode of our Instructure Cast. I'm your host, Melissa, and I have Ryan here with me. And Ryan, you're all the way from Bogota, I believe, I am. this episode. I am broadcasting live from Politecnico Gran Colombiano here in Bogota, Colombia. I love it. I love it. And I'm just in Arizona, and so that's uh, <laughs> that's a little bit farther than I am from home for both of us. And I will well, say just... the al- the altitude gets you down here. If I if I sound a little funny, it's because I'm at you know nine thousand feet. You'd think you'd be trained for that, Ryan. You live in Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City is high, not this high. It's crazy. That's wild. I didn't know it was that high. Yeah. Well, let's let's get going here because we have a really special guest. I know I always say that. We always have special guests. That's how cool this instructor <laughs> cast is. But we have a very special and uh, guest and someone who's very dear to my heart. So with no more further ado, I'd love to introduce Zach Pendleton, our chief architect. Welcome, Zach. Woo-hoo. Welcome, Zach. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, so good to have you. And Zach has been on our uh, AI journey from the very beginning at Instructure, actually before really AI even hit hit the press last year. But before we jump in, because we're going to pick his brain on where are we at now? You know, it's been almost a year since uh, AI hit the, the main news in education. Yeah. Before we do that, Zach, share a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about you, how'd you end up at Instructure? How long have you been at Instructure? Uh, just so that the audience can get to know you a little bit too. Yeah, so my journey to Instructure started a long time ago when I, like most English majors, got into software engineering. <laughs> so I uh, I joined Instructure in 2011 as a software engineer. So I've been here for just a little over 12 years now and have had a, a long, really wonderful run working in our uh, engineering department. I spent a little bit of time in our product and corporate strategy groups and then came back to engineering, which I love. And in this current role as chief architect, I get to, uh, as we said, focus on really exciting, fun things like AI. Uh, I also spend a lot of time talking with, you know, our great customers, hearing about what some of the uh, most pressing problems in education are and, and working with our partners as well. And then working with the teams at Instructure to try to marry new uh, and novel technologies to those challenges. And I have the luxury of meeting with Zach every week. I think I drop his name every time we talk about AI because he makes me smarter on it every single conversation we have together. But uh, most of this is a fun trivia fact. We are recording this on November 30th. This is the one-year anniversary of the release of ChatGPT. So our timing is perfect. I love that. Uh, Well done on this. Uh, (laughs) 
I, I have a favorite question I always ask Zach, and he's gonna he's gonna chuckle as I ask him yet again. But I think the audience would love to hear this. Zach, do you still code? Oh man, as much as I can. Yes. <laughs> so can't let uh, it go. That's right. It's got to keep those fingers busy. Love so it. Zach, as, as we jump into AI, one of the things we talk about a lot is overcoming the fear of AI and getting people to engage with AI in, in really creative ways. Um, but as as institutions encourage their educators to go out and try these AI tools, what are some of the boundaries they can put in place to help uh, do that safely and, and effectively? Yeah, so I, I think uh, at, at the risk of... Uh, you know, talking about instructor a little too much, I will say, I think the policies <laughs> that we've defined are a really great starting place when you're thinking about how to use these tools in an institution or, uh, or even just personally at home. Right. And so, uh, as we read through government guidance across the world, I think we really distilled those down into three principles that guide our use. The first one is making sure that the use, our use of artificial intelligence is intentional, uh, that we're not looking for excuses to use this technology, but that we're actually using it to solve real world problems. And I think uh, that's really important to remember, because as I was talking earlier about the uh, trying to marry educational problems with new technologies to solve them. Uh, you know, those problems, that word number one and top of mind the day before ChatGPT was released a year ago are still pressing important problems. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the, the other principles for us guide how we think about using these tools once we found a use case. So the, the next one is making sure that our use of these tools is safe. So understanding how these things can go wrong, uh, you know, and I, I think especially in student contexts, we talk a lot about. Uh, academic integrity on the student side, it's also important to remember that these tools don't really have a concept of of true or false or right or wrong. And yeah. so we want to make sure that we use them in a way that's safe for students so that they know what they can expect from these tools. And so I, I think a key part of that uh, is, is thinking about it as educators, but also in encouraging students to experiment so that they realize the limitations of these tools and know when they're appropriate and not appropriate to use. And then the last piece is making sure that our use of these tools is equitable. So uh, I, I think that, you know, like a lot of technology, there's a risk here that they may, uh, this tool may widen existing gaps or disparities uh, for, for students who are disadvantaged or underprivileged. And we want to make sure that we're aware of that uh, and that we think about how we can combat or, or offset that, especially because, you know, these tools are trained on the entire internet and, uh, I, the internet's got some problems. Uh, so we want to make sure that we don't make those problems worse. Yeah. Uh, the, the point we, we had Cheryl Barnes on uh, a webinar with us from MIT. Uh, and she, she just said, don't call it a hallucination. You're, you're anthropomorphizing something that is not human. You're, you're calling it a name. You're giving it uh, a name. You're, you're acting like it's human and it just doesn't think that way. It is, it is simply a tool that's trying to give you the answer you want. Right. And, as soon exactly. as you realize that, we, we take away some of that fear, some of that, that uh, nefarious intent. There is no nefarious intent there. Certainly, yeah. In the same way that, you know, my autocomplete gets words wrong occasionally, you know, if I'm trying to spell something that's very unique to me. So, yeah, it's the same principle. That's right. I get it wrong all the time, uh, in, in all the worst times, too. That's for sure. Uh -huh. <laughs> to add to this, Zach, so teachers out there... Um, Parents, students even, as they're 
looking at different tooling, as they're, you know, taking opportunities to do the experimentation that you suggest, how do they better inform themselves around how tools use AI? Um, I think that's a big question. There's just so much out there. How do you make choices? How do you sort of discern what you should experiment with versus what you shouldn't? Do you have any advice there? Because I know you've been experimenting with a lot of stuff out there as you're thinking about what we bring into Instructure's products. That's a great question. So, you know, I mean, a year ago when ChatGPT came out, that was the only tool most of us had ever heard of that yeah. used AI. And so we, we didn't really have a sense of what these tools did, how they were used, how our data was, was taken or, or stored. And, and now I think there's a lot more transparency and clarity in the industry. And so the, the first question I would say, when you're thinking about how to use these tools is, is to make sure that you ask the tool provider what happens to your data. We want to make sure that uh, especially for student data and yeah. any intellectual property that it's not going back into the model for more, for future training, right? Because mm-hmm. that data may then just be spit out in a future iteration in a way that, that isn't very safe, right? Or, uh, or isn't very secure outside of that. I, I think, you know, once you're comfortable there with where your data is going and how it's being used, uh, then I, I love the idea of thinking again about those key problems in your day. What are things that you do a lot of that you don't really love? Uh, I, I know for me, these tools have been so useful thinking about blank page problems, right? Mm-hmm. When I when I sit down to, to draft an email that I don't quite know how to write or I've got to go write uh, a, a paper or something, asking the tool for just ideas or suggestions like a bullet list. And then I can help build on top of those by picking the ones that I like, asking the tool to expand on those, or then I can work on them as well. And that's really a, a fun way to experiment with these tools and a really great way to start sensing the boundaries of them and how they do things a little differently than I would. I love that advice around understanding the data in particular mm-hmm. and knowing how your data is being used. I think this is something that, you know, we can't reiterate enough, even with tools that aren't necessarily leveraging AI. If somebody's, if a tool is willing to explicitly tell you how they're using their data, that's typically, usually a good sign that at least they're informed and they want to inform you and that they are attempting to be data stewards. So, you know, at a very minimum threshold, I would say you want to use tools out there that are open and and expose how they are leveraging AI and what is happening with your data. There's a lot of tools out there that don't. You have no idea. Yeah. Um, and you just have to make assumptions. Yeah. There are even LMS players in the market that have rolled out some AI tools uh, at costs that are good, too good to be true that we might want to actually look at uh, exactly what that looks long term because – you know that we've talked about cost and as being one of those uh, you know aspects that we need to manage along with data and security. Um, but it's one of those things that we we need to ask. If it, if it sounds too good to be true, it just might be. Yeah, that's a really Absolutely. good point, Ryan. Right, and that's uh, you know we talk about Chat GPT being free. It's free because they want the data, and they're very explicit about taking it. But they do use that to train data. You know train future models. And yeah. and to your point, these models are really expensive to run. And so if if it's free, uh, usually you're paying for it somewhere else, unless, unless the company's very explicit and, and mm-hmm. can tell you definitely that they're not using your data. There was some really interesting data that came out just two weeks ago from Titan Partners, uh, research that showed the adoption where, where educators versus students live on the adoption curve. And students are much further down that adoption curve around generative AI than, than educators are. But one of the great, I think, posts that they had, or one of the great data points they had was 
everyone was much more likely to have a positive viewpoint of generative AI if they had experimented with the tools. The more familiar they were with it, the more positive they thought about it. Uh, and so as educators start to look at ways to engage with these tools, a lot of them, because you, you mentioned that pace of change has been so aggressive. We've seen so much froth. Uh, and you, I think I steal your term that you, you think we've passed peak froth at this point, and maybe we'll settle into a little more productive conversation. How can they engage? Uh, what's the best way to just, just start playing with the tools and, and figure out where to, where to go? what to do in the classroom. Yeah, I again, I think that for me, I, I love thinking about these tools in terms of, uh, I, I guess, tasks for these tools, I should say, in things that are high cognitive load, low satisfaction uh, for me. So I, I think of those tasks that I do every day for my work that take a lot of mental energy for me so that when I'm done doing them, I don't have the energy to do the things that I really wanted to do in the first place or that get, you know, get me excited about my job. And so uh, anything in an educator's workflow that's like that, I think is a great target task for artificial intelligence mm -hmm. where they're able to reduce that cognitive load and then you become more of an editor instead of an author in those tasks, right? I, I think you can't just remove yourself entirely. Uh, you still need to sign off on the content, edit, and adjust it. But I, I think for me, that's been really useful in steering me towards tasks at work where these tools are, are really useful. Yeah, you use that that term "human in the loop," which I love, and I, I expound on that all, or you know, or uh, see the praises of that term all the time because. It can do things like give confidently incorrect answers and things like that. We have to make sure that we stay in the loop as humans. We're we're the editors. It's, you know, in many cases. That's right. Yeah. Using it to extend your existing workflows instead of replace them, I think is key. So, yeah. you know, as I said before, I think any type of problem that's a kind of blank page, these tools can be great at just getting you started. So brainstorming curriculum or thinking uh, about different ways to teach a concept to a student who may have a hard time understanding it. Uh, these tools are really great at, at that type of generation because it's very, uh, it's creative and open-ended. And then on the other end, I think there, uh, there are some really interesting use cases around taking existing educational content. And again, you, you want to make sure that you're using something here that's not going to suck that content into the model for training, but then using it to help inform what your rubrics look like helping to identify what learning outcomes are taught inside of a piece of content, uh, or even you know, using it to, to make it easier to generate formative assessment content. Uh, and you, know, you talked about these models sometimes lying. That's great when you're writing wrong answers or distractors for multiple <laughs> choice questions. So be really useful. You've been out on the road with Ryan and I a lot, just listening to what people are experimenting with and doing. Anything cool that you've seen that really got you excited, either an experiment you're seeing in education or a tool or an opportunity? Yeah, so I've seen a few use cases that I thought were really exciting. The first one, which you actually, uh, you sent this my way, Melissa, and it was really impressive. We, we had uh, an instructor who was using ChatGPT to format course content and to write HTML, right? And I, I love that use case because for me, it's this, almost a democratization of expertise, right? I don't have to be an HTML expert anymore to be able to write HTML. And I uh, and there are lots of tasks like that. So I, I think that's a really, really fun, interesting use case. Uh, another one I saw that was, I, I thought fascinating, uh, an institution was using a large language model 
to help accelerate their transition into Canvas. So they were mm -hmm. taking course exports and data from their previous LMS, and then they were able to feed those through the model and get them out in the format that they needed to import them into Canvas, which was, again, a really, really powerful use case. And they said save them like months on their implementation. So I, I think some really creative, fun use cases out there. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's only the tip of the iceberg, I'm sure. I love it. Ryan? Do you have any favorites you've seen? I've been playing with some of the visual tools lately. I, it, that's one thing, you know, we talk about being a year into this. There's an image I show in one of my presentations that's really pretty rudimentary. And it was the first time I ever uh, asked AI to generate, generative AI to generate a um, image for me. And like now they're so much more advanced. They're so much better. They still generally have a look that you can tell is AI, but I, you know, we were using some in a presentation here yesterday and I was like, wow, they've come a long way in just a year. So yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if I'd highlight one specifically, but the Dolly's Dolly right now is as good as any that I've seen. Very cool. Most, I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting about, about our conversation the other week with Simon and Finley uh, was that Simon had a different level of confidence in using the AI tools than Finley did because he'd been given guidance about when and how to use those tools. Finley felt like she'd been told not to use them. And as a rule follower, uh, she was like, I'm not, I'm not going to use them. So, uh, you know, Zach, what would you say as far as giving students guidance? And, you know, it's not just your English teacher that needs to give you uh, information on using these tools, right? It needs to be broader. That's right. Yeah, I, I think uh, and this is a really great point. I think the the wrong thing to do in a classroom is just to try to ban it outright. I, because yeah. I, as you said, students are further along the adoption curve here and they're starting to think about these tools. And and I think those use cases go beyond academic dishonesty for them. And so the, the key for me is having an open, candid conversation with students about how these tools may be appropriate in the classroom and how they may not be appropriate so that students understand what you're hoping to teach them and how these tools could be used to improve those outcomes and, and not to you know, replace them or sidestep them. Uh, a, a really effective practice I've seen from a number of educators is starting off the semester with an assignment that encourages students to use AI in a way that teases up that conversation. So having uh, you know, a writing assignment where half of the class uses AI, half of the class does not, or a writing assignment where the entire class is encouraged to do it twice, once on their own, once with AI, Interesting. and then asking students to blind peer review each other's work and then talk about which ones were AI and not, or having a, a discussion in the classroom about what went well in the AI version and what they liked more about the human versions so that the class decides together how these tools may be used in the future and and where it where it's appropriate for that particular class and curriculum. Ooh, I love that. Zach, if the, I hope it's okay. I'm going to mention this. You you have kiddos at home. Are they playing with it? Oh my goodness, more than I would like. Yeah, I <laughs> uh, these tools unfortunately are really good at writing bad jokes. So my <laughs> my kids. Love using them for jokes. And, uh, you know, Ryan, you talked about the image generation. That's another really fun one. Yeah. They, they yeah. love uh, trying to draw pictures with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the the other you have a great story and i i recite it a lot when I, i'm talking out here but as i'm in Colombia this week and struggling with my lack of spanish uh you have used it uh, for language learning right that's right yeah these tools have been personally really useful for me i you know i've got chat gpt always open on my phone now and i found it's 
it's a really great language tutor for me, unlike things like Google Translate or Apple Translate, which were good at getting a phrase. Uh, you know, these tools are able to I, I can go ask it questions once I get the translation to better understand uh, grammar and, and better understand the language. And so, I, I mean, the story I told you, right, I've, I I previously lived in Hungary for a few years. And my Hungarian is just terrible. And uh, this summer I was back visiting and, and was using chat GPT to, to learn a little bit more and to try to brush up. And for the first time in my life, had a conversation with, with someone entirely in Hungarian and my, uh, my wife didn't believe it. We just, we walked away <laughs> and she just whispered, what just happened? You know? And so I, <laughs> I, I wish I could take the credit, but these tools are, yeah, a lot That's of fun an amazing use case. translation. Yeah. yeah. So we talk a lot about the pace of change and how it can really be difficult sometimes to jump in and engage with these tools because they're changing so quickly, but we're a year in and uh, what does the next year look like? What is the next, what do we see? I think we keep discovering new use cases like you just talked about. What's next? I, I think that there are a few changes coming. I So when from chat GPT until now, the focus has really been on these really large language models from companies like OpenAI, Mm -hmm. uh, Meta, Google, and those models are expensive. They're hard to train, uh, and and so they're really only used by a few large companies. And I, while those companies like OpenAI have been able to see really incredible growth in the size and capacity of these models, I think that there are signs in the market that we're that we're reaching a peak in in terms of the, that approach technologically. Right, yeah. that it's going to be increasingly difficult to scale and to pay for models that are bigger and bigger in size. And so where we've seen a lot of uh, interest in the space and a lot of research dollars going are into smaller large language models. So, you know, these are our models. There are a few that have come out of Facebook are out of Meta called Llama. And uh, they're not as capable as something like a, a chat GPT, but they're very good at doing discrete individual tasks, yeah. and they're much easier for for researchers and for you know even institutions to to do go through a process we call fine tuning, which allows them to uh, to better speak in the desired voice or to to better learn what it is you're trying to do. So I, I think in the next year we'll see a lot of continued emphasis and focus on those models because they're uh, far more affordable uh, to run. And it's much easier to run them locally or in your own cloud. So oh, in our case, for instance, yeah, we, we've been able to run these models uh, inside of the same AWS infrastructure that we use for everything else, which is great because it it's addresses for us a lot of those concerns we talked about in the beginning around data private, privacy, data residency, uh, and making sure that we know where information is going and how it's being used. That's awesome. That's I think that's the next step in getting AI really everywhere, right? Those smaller, manageable, more affordable models. That's cool. That's right. Yeah, I, I think I, I tell this to people all the time, but I think it's really exciting for me when I, I think of a future where I've got one of these models running on my phone. And because that is sitting in that closed loop system, it I, I'm comfortable giving it the names of my friends and my chats and my favorite restaurants uh, so that it can really start to uh, to get better at predicting what I want and what I'm going to say. And, and then doing those things for me. Do you think, Zach, it's going to um, uh, start to merge with wearables? 
and, you know, become a personal tool at all times. I know it's already doing that to a certain degree. There's a couple of experiments out there with it. Do you see emerging of those two? Yeah, that's a great point. So yeah, I, I do think there's a lot of potential there. And, and like you said, we're starting to see some early designs inside of wearables and, and hardware here that implements these tools. But for me, that is a huge opportunity because I said, I, I think it solves so many of the concerns that we have about these models and allows us uh, to, again, use them to just really accelerate some some kind of boring day-to-day tasks. Uh, and and the thought of, of having these smaller models becomes possible to, to fine-tune and train them for an individual or for a classroom or an institution in a way that is pretty challenging today. So I, I do see a lot of promise there, and I, I can't wait for the day when AI is able to get me its uh, first reservation at my favorite Mexican restaurant. <laughs> yeah, it's your, it's your Star Trek communicator or your own little personal Cortana sitting on your shoulder. You know, the, like we're almost there. That's kind of incredible. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty magical. The the one note I want to wrap up on, if we could, is there's still that lingering fear that in some way AI will replace educators. What do you have to say to people that that uh, are worried about that? You know, I there's that term we talked about earlier, Ryan, that human in the loop. I think I've seen these tools be really successful when there is a human in the loop, and I've seen them fail in strange and uh, <laughs> difficult ways when the human tries to remove themselves from the loop. And so I really don't see a world where where educators are replaced by these tools because, as you said, right they're not hallucinating because they're not thinking. Uh, and so <laughs> we, we know uh, the needs of our students. Uh, we know the curriculum better than anyone. And where I, I see these tools shining is in taking the educator voice and amplifying it yeah. and making it possible for educators to reach students where they couldn't before. And they can't do that without the educator at the beginning of that process. Yeah. I think a lot of people forget that this isn't the computer is not painting a picture. The human is telling the computer what to paint. And and when we remember that, I think it's a lot, a lot less scary. Yep. That's right. Well, awesome. This has been uh, an amazing podcast. We will do another one with you, Zach. Like I said, I think I reference you every time we talk about AI, Melissa and I both do uh, because you, you were stuck into it more than literally anybody I know uh, in the world. So uh, we appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Oh, I really appreciate the chance to come talk about it. Thank you two so much for having me. We should do this annually on this day, I think, to commemorate the, <laughs> we the, in the innovation that's coming into education, for sure. And probably several times in between, but yeah, yes, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining us for this episode of the InstructureCast podcast. We look forward to uh, hearing from you on all of these socials. Uh, tell us what you want us to talk about and what you want to hear more about. And again, as always, we appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of InstructureCast. We're grateful to have you as part of our vibrant community of teachers, educators, administrators, and education enthusiasts. Don't forget to find us on social media, subscribe to the podcast, and share the ed love with your fellow educators. Together, we'll keep igniting that spark of inspiration, celebrating the art of teaching, and embracing the heart and soul of learning. And remember, the Instructure community is the heartbeat of our adventure, where more amazing content, valuable advice, and lively discussions await you with like-minded individuals who share your passion for education. 
As we wrap up this episode, we hope you're inspired to keep grooving, learning, and making a difference in the lives of your students and peers. We're so excited to hear about your new adventures. Make sure to take us with you. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of InstructureCast. We're grateful to have you as part of our vibrant community of teachers, educators, administrators, and education enthusiasts. Don't forget to find us on social media, subscribe to the podcast, and share the ed love with your fellow educators. Together, we'll keep igniting that spark of inspiration, celebrating the art of teaching, and embracing the heart and soul of learning. And remember, the Instructure community is the heartbeat of our adventure, where more amazing content, valuable advice, and lively discussions await you with like-minded individuals who share your passion for education. As we wrap up this episode, we hope you're inspired to keep grooving, learning, and making a difference in the lives of your students and peers. We're so excited to hear about your new adventures. Make sure to take us with you.